0: When COVID-19 hit, the world went into shock. Virtually no one was prepared for the dramatic shift in every aspect of their lives that was about to come cascading down upon them and all of us. Well, not everyone. In fact, in 2015, at a TED Talk, Bill Gates warned of a Spanish flu-like pandemic he saw coming. He observed the response to West Africa's 2014 Ebola outbreak and the poor response from the rest of the world. Gates rightly predicted a future pandemic was going to hit us. It was as if the world was hit by a rogue wave, says global futurist Jonathan Brill, the author of a book by that name, in which he points out rogue waves are in fact far more likely to happen than we previously understood. In fact, they're not rogue waves uh, because rogue quantum harmonic oscillations or modulation instabilities are present in a wide range of media and environments. The key, according to Brill, is to spot the harmonic changes on the horizon that foreshadow their arrival. It's tricky, so spotting those tell-tale tell signs is only step one in the development of appropriate responses that ensure you can successfully navigate the choppy waters that are associated with them and that are ahead of you. Brill encourages readers to adopt a Sherlock Holmes-like abduction approach to observing, assessing, or deducing, and then eliminating the impossible, which means that Whatever remains, no matter how crazy or mad it may seem, it must be the truth. It's hard to do this. So the challenge with this approach is that it is antithetical to the process most of us individually and as companies employ. Those processes that we've been using were built for less volatile times. And Brill says those processes presume that You can deliver compound growth year after year if you just reduce risk, improve efficiencies, and keep your products up to date. I invited Jonathan Brill, a global futurist and the author of Rogue Waves to join me for a conversation that matters about how you can future-proof yourself and your business to survive and profit from radical change. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. You're down in California. Where exactly in California are you? I'm in Sausalito, the next town north of San Francisco. So I
1: look out at the day at the, at the Golden Gate Bridge.
0: As you sit there today and you think about the changes in the last 18 to 24 months, that view has changed, hasn't it? And were you able to foresee what was coming based on the fact that you are used to scanning the horizon?
1: So uh, up until I took some time off to write this book, I was the global futurist at HP, at the computer company. And uh, one of the things we deal with is microfluidics technology. Not that you need to know what that is, but the point is that one of the applications is disease diagnostics. And so we were actually looking at what's the likelihood of a pandemic increasing over time, because that would create a new business opportunity for us. And so we were very much aware uh, that this was a a highly dynamic threat, and yet people were treating it like these 100-year diseases were happening every 100 years, when, in fact, we'd had two major respiratory pandemics uh, in the last couple of decades. um, And the things that had made it possible to contain them before had changed. We'd had a explosion of people traveling around the world out of Asia uh, between 2012 and 2019. The number of people uh, traveling in tor- tourists traveling out of China increased ten times. That moved them from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest tourism spender on the planet. So when you had a spark, and we'll talk in a second about what caused that, you had the a, a spread was inevitable. Uh, now, what was happening in terms of the increased likelihood of of uh, a zoonotic disease, something moving from animals to humans? We'd uh, over the since 1995 taken 400 million people in China alone and moved them out of rural areas into cities. What does that mean? You're, you're in these cities. You're cutting out the wilderness. You're cutting out the landscape. And one of the places we know that there's a lot of zoonotic disease transfer is in Wuhan. So when you take a look at all of these things happening together, what you saw was that the likelihood is that this was no longer a one in a hundred chance, this was maybe a one in 10, one in 15 chance of happening. And yet we were miscalculating the risk in a radical way and not taking the actions we needed to, to take advantage of, to to turn this disease uh, as a business to our advantage. Um, HP fortunately, uh, made some investment uh, that prepared them to take advantage of of a lot of these issues.
0: How did you do that? Because I know that I'm I can look at these things in hindsight and go, oh okay, now I can connect the dots. By then it's too late. you're not you're not ahead of the curve. So how do you like what is it that you the process that you go through to start to identify yeah. a trend that you go this is on an intersection, with where I'm at and where my organization or even my family is going. What are these things that keep your mind open to being able to bring in that information and make appropriate decisions?
1: I think about it slightly differently. Um, These rogue waves, and let's just define that for a second. A rogue wave is an unmanageable sudden shift. That's the result of the overlap of Individually manageable changes in a certain time. And take a look at these demographic people moving around, technological shifts and economic shifts. People traveling more; um, those were each individually manageable. When, but when they collided, they became unmanageable. Um, you can't prepare for every rogue wave. You can certainly try and be more aware, but what you really want to do is take a look at the four major buckets of risk that we all face as individuals, as businesses. We have financial risk, we have operational risk, we have external risk, and we have strategic risk. And what we do typically as companies is we look at those financial and operational issues, but the reality uh, is three quarters of the time sustained decreases in firm value are the result of those external and strategic risks, changes in the external environment and changes in sudden changes in demand that we weren't prepared for. And so what we wanna do is start to take a look at our organizations and say, okay, well, what combinations of those four things, what I call the four foes, financial, operational, external, and strategic, are issues for me? Um, And then you wanna say, okay, well, Let's take a look at our, you know, how, where do we need to innovate to to increase our resilience? And then we wanna take a look at our customers and do the same thing and say, okay, well, how can we provide value? Because we know that there are gonna be issues where they aren't ready. And provide uh, significant outside value to our customers by having products ready to go when they need them.
0: Okay, I hear you say all of that. And I also uh, hear myself thinking, I mean, how do I do that? Because there's a there's a tremendous number of unknowns. Because I I can look at future intersections of if this happens, it goes here. If that happens, it goes there. It creates right. a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And as you point out in your book, that's antithetical to the processes that so many businesses have used for their future planning. They don't wanna hear uncertainty. They'd rather, you know, I like that line that you have in there. They'd rather be wrong than uncertain. And, and what is it about the mindset that, that makes us do that and therefore set us up to miss what's coming at us?
1: So for for most of my professional career, and and I suspect most of our audiences here, uh, the world has been getting more stable over the last 40 years. It's been, uh, we've had greater trade harmonization. We've had technology that removes friction. All of these things uh, decrease global tension. And so we've built an optimization mindset in our businesses, right, that we grow by becoming more efficient. And that's always important. But if you take a look at the indicators of the next decade, what you see is that we're becoming more volatile, that we're going to have more rogue wave types of situations happening over the coming decade. And that means that we need to think differently. And instead of trying to avoid being overwhelmed, start to expect that it will happen and ask, what happens next? How do we move that from A threat to a situation where we're more resilient than our competitors. And while they're trying to bail out their boats from being capsized, we're continuing to move forward, we're continuing to take market share. And it turns out that companies that take this approach, they tend to do about 46% better over time, according to a 15 year study by McKinsey that came out a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, so, so we have an assumption about quarterly performance. And we uh, certainly incentivize quarterly performance, but it looks like the companies that that look a little farther and think about, okay, well, what's the impact of that cost cutting this quarter? They tend to uh, do substantially better over time. A, a good example is Toyota over the past year. So these are the guys who really invented lean manufacturing. They, they, they removed all of the meat, uh, all of the fat out of their supply chains, um, and and uh, really push forward the idea of just-in-time manufacturing. And in about 2012, uh, when when the Fukushima nuclear disaster hit, they had an interesting experience. Their local suppliers of of uh, materials of components weren't able to deliver because you know there was a nuclear disaster. And so they looked at what what was going on here and they stepped back and they said, okay, well, where do we need to put buffers into our system? Where do we need to give up near perform, near-term near performance for long-term reliability? And one of the things they did was they, they built a, they created a six-month stockpile of semiconductors. And so when in 2016, Taiwan had a, um, uh, a natural disaster and there weren't semiconductors to be found anywhere. They operated smoothly uh, where their competitors didn't. And when COVID happened, when COVID hit, the same thing occurred. They continue to operate smoothly for the majority of of the experience we've had so far, where their competitors have been hit by supply chain shortages and inability to produce cars because of a, a lack of components. And so the reality here is when you make slightly longer term decisions you get better reliability over time and that more than makes up for any quarterly losses
0: so how do we then uh, apply that kind of thinking to the myriad of changes that are coming at us you know you 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 talked about the fact that we had fairly stable systems in our lives you know, there'd be a production here, these things would be happening, population was growing this way, technology would uh, advance even then in a somewhat linear way. Now everything is almost chaotic. You know, we've got AI, we've got aging populations, we've got uh, income disparity, we've got uh, global supply chains. How do you start to pull together all that information that can help you make decisions uh, that, well, will be appropriate?
1: That's a great question. Uh, when I look at the future, you know, I look at what we can know, uh, what we can't know, and what we don't know, right? Um, kind of what... what um, Donald Runsfeld called the knowns and unknowns. The known unknowns, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, in the book, uh, when I was at HP, we did about $15 million of research over a number of years to figure out what we can know, what are the trackable changes over the next decade. And we lay those out in the second chapter of the book. Uh, and so one of my first uh, proposals is take a look at those things that we can know will change. And say, okay, if some of these happen faster or slower than we expect, uh, and we lay out ten of them, uh, if they happens faster or slower than we expect, you know, what would be the impact on my finances, on my operations, on my external environment, and on a strategy, so that I can be prepared. Uh, a second approach is to take a look at what's happened over the 20th century. You know, we had about 400 major shocks. I know that a lot of this goes out to Canada, but we had about 400 major shocks, business shocks in the US over the 20th century. That's about one a quarter to give you a sense of scale. Um, and if you take a look at those, if you take a look at any decade of the 20th century, you know, is your strategic plan, are your operations ready for that? Are your finances ready for that? And by starting to look, if you don't believe that you can see the future, starting to look at the things that have happened in the past, um, you know, that's a really great way to look at this too. But the, the goal here, the, the thing you need to think about is what happens when multiple things overlap. You know what, what happens so much of the time is we look at individual headlines in the newspaper instead of thinking about the impact of the entirety of what's going on in the newspaper. You know, we need to look at that bigger picture. We need to look more holistically at the range of things that could overlap to create the next rogue wave.
0: You know, when you you mentioned that, of course, in your book, and I was thinking about it. There's a great line from former U.S. President Bill Clinton. He said, don't read the headlines, follow the trend lines. And I think that mm-hmm. it's a, a really important aspect. But one of the other things that you touch on is resilience. Um are are you familiar with a uh, Nazim Nicholas Taub's book Antifragile? Um I am. Um, yeah. And and so when I read that book I went Oh my gosh! And and what I think that you're talking about in resilience is, in some ways, uh, uh, approaching what he's saying. Don't look at these shocks as being something that can will like beat you up or take you down. Look at them as opportunities to grow and strengthen. Because you know the opposite of uh, fragility isn't well. I don't know. Yeah, well, he said it's antifragile. Uh, you know, you you take on this challenge but you grow and you get stronger. How important is it that you have that kind of mindset as we now start to navigate a world that's probably going to have less and less certainty than what, as you mentioned earlier, we're used to in our lifetimes?
1: So so many great questions inside of that question. So the first is (laughs) uh, I'm a big fan of, of Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, he was a financial manager, so he yeah. hasn't actually run operating companies before. Uh, and so mathematically, I agree with a lot of what he says. Uh, a lot of what I talk about in my book is how do you implement that in, in a real organization that has to make stuff, that has to provide services, that has to manage supply chain and efficiencies. And so it, it, it is based on a mathematical approach that that... Taleb suggests, but but it drills it down into to tactics that you can use today. Uh, I think that we're in this interesting situation right now where we have more data, we have more information than ever before, and yet in some way that means that we have less certainty because uh, even though we have more data, even though we have more information, and and we're able to to kind of. Predict predict and project what might happen in the future for the first time. So for instance, climate modeling might or might not be that accurate yet, but this is the first time in human history we're able to look 50, 100 years out into the future and say, this is what I think this thing looks like. Here's what I think the economic impacts on a city level are going to be. And and that's really only been true of that kind of economic impact assessment in the last couple of years. so we have a lot more certainty about the future, but that means that there's a lot more unknowns, right? They, because we start decisions about things that we're uncertain about. Uh, the the last piece that you talked about was, was about uh, kind of fragile versus anti-fragile organizations. Think about it slightly differently than, than uh, Taleb. Uh, think about the idea of resilient growth. So we have this idea of resiliency, that we have... You know, uh, over the last you know decade or so, seventy percent of companies, large companies, have developed um, enterprise risk management capabilities in their organizations. Uh, but they don't talk to their innovation people, and yet we have a interesting disconnect between resilience and growth in our companies, where we have both of these competencies, but they don't talk, and they're they're. I think that's because we think about risk all wrong risk isn't uh, a measure of threat. It's it's technically a measure of change over time, of volatility. And that means that there's more upside for people who are prepared and more downside for those who aren't. The reality is that more billionaires are minted in downtimes than in uptimes. The, the billionaire list uh, over the last year has grown almost 10%. Think about that. In uh, a time where there was, in, in the US, I think, a 3.5% shrinkage in the economy, the, the billionaire list grew almost 10%. If you're ready, if you're prepared, if you're resilient and able to take those bets for longer term growth, you know, these downtimes, this volatility is good for you.
0: You know, as you were speaking, I was reminded, I'm going to go back to another example from Bill Clinton. He wrote a paper at Oxford University when he was graduating that had five different uh, answers to it because he said uh, the sort of the un- Predictability of human uh, motivations, interactions, changes, and whatnot. Say that we can never know for certain what 25 years out is going to look like, and uh, and the university used that paper as an example of the perfect paper. But what, but you, you know, what you were talking about? Okay, I have this model. I think that because I want to be as prepared as possible, I have to also be developing other scenarios. You can't just say, okay, one scenario, oh, yeah, okay, this model, uh, it comes together and it confirms my belief or bias. Do we have to move beyond that so that we're willing to say, okay, that is one potential outcome. Do we also have to look at other ones as well?
1: Uh so I spent much of my career running contract research and development. So this, this was basically a business where the likelihood of failure, that, that's the, that's the majority case. Um, and so I think we need to think differently uh, about the future. We need to think about what happens if we fail? What happens if that's, that's the main case? Because that's kind of the nature of innovation, uh, and in dealing with volatility. And how do you turn that to your advantage? The question is how do you balance your, your innovation portfolio? How do you, how do you think about it is uh, just like any other investment portfolio where you, where you have counter cyclical investments? So the way I think about it is is how do you have um, uh, growth investments kind of put a ding in the universe investments? How do you have sustaining investments that make sure that things kind of move forward? And then how do you make sure that you have enough insurance investments that if things go bad, these give you a second path out? And we want to be thinking about what's the right combination for, for our lives, for our organizations, just like we would in, in a retirement plan. And so when we take a look at uh, this rising volatility and we take a look at how do we manage it? We can't just say, hey, I've got one approach. I, I'm doing one thing and that's how we're going to win. It's I'm doing a combination of things and I know that the environment will change. I know my strategy will fail um, uh, or is likely to fail. And when that happens, I've, I've made enough investments and in enough things with, a, with the right kind of portfolio that I'll have the payoff anyway. I'll, I'll have another path forward anyway.
0: I agree with you, and I think that it's a strategy that as individuals we need to employ as well. You know, I highly encourage anybody who's watched this uh, to to buy your book and read it. It was a very, very fascinating read. Beautifully written, too. You've got a nice touch uh, uh, putting a word to page. So uh, thank you very much for your time.